have all dealt with a common theme, a common story, and a tragic occurrence. Really, from the beginning of the book of Acts, the church is facing at least some degree of opposition. But in the beginning, the opposition is relatively light, and it pales in comparison to the glories that are being demonstrated. It's really a living version of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4 that the momentary light afflictions are nothing compared to the glories that are going to be revealed in the age to come. But with the stoning of Stephen, we can no longer say that it was momentary light affliction. The church is facing some serious persecution and the affliction is really being turned up. To put it in context, and I want you to just take a second and put yourself in their shoes and think about what it would have been like Everybody in the church knew this man, Stephen. This was a man that was known and well thought of and well regarded according to Acts chapter 6. He was a righteous man. This is a man that had gone all in for the cause of the gospel and he'd given his life for this early movement called the church with no compromise. To kind of bring it down to our level, think about somebody that we know that lives in our context. I'm not going to give you the full gory details of everything that happened to Stephen, but to think about the space between Acts 7 and Acts 8 and where these guys' minds must have been, I want you to think about somebody in this church that we all know and we all love and everybody appreciates their ministry in the church and having to stand witness to their martyrdom and think about the ripple effects that it would send throughout the body. So what I want to do in these next few weeks is take you through what these early Christians must have been thinking after the stoning of Stephen before we get in to Acts chapter 8 and the real thing that I want to do in week one as we step aside from our series is show you why did these early Christians see the church as so necessary that they were even willing to risk their lives to be a part of it while so many today who claim to be Christians barely see the church necessary to their existence and are seemingly okay with it costing them absolutely nothing. And I think that it's worth slowing down for a moment to put ourselves in their shoes. I mean, not only did these folks not leave the church after the stoning of Stephen, but the reason that I want to slow down and look at this for a few weeks was this is the moment that caused the church to pop. The place took off after this. It caused the church to grow, to spread out, to reach the lost, to evangelize the whole known world. And this was the wick that caused the explosion, that caused the church to boom. It's pretty awesome to think about. So we're going to do a little detour and start a little series on the importance of the local church called Taking Ownership 
of your membership because I believe that things have changed a lot since the day when the Lord took Stephen. And I believe that sometimes instead of just plowing through, it's worth taking time to just stop and push pause and put yourself by your imagination in the shoes of the people in scripture. I mean, really, think about how much church membership in the local church must have meant to these people that when they saw their friend and mentor taken from them in a violent manner right before their very eyes, that the church grows instantly as a result. Think about that. Honestly, that's not rhetorical. Think about that. Wrap your minds around that. I've seen people leave churches because the drums were too loud. Because they didn't like the arrangement of a beloved hymn that they grew up with. Because a ministry that was a sacred cow to them was slain before their very eyes and canceled. And just so you know, I love slaying sacred cows. I've seen many occasions where somebody left because... They had a fleeting passion about something and somebody else didn't share their fleeting passion in the five minutes that they were passionate about that thing. Perhaps even worse, I've watched momentary light affliction take people out, not in a way where it makes them leave, but in a way to where they become just a butt in a pew for the rest of their life. They become ambivalent. They become apathetic to the cause of the gospel. They become just an occasional butt in a pew after that. And then they become one of the millions of disengaged folks out there that call themselves a Christian but have very little Christianity that marks their life. They don't burn white hot for Jesus. There's no conviction of sin in their life to speak of. There's no aching for the lost to come to know Christ. There's not a devotion to the one-anothering that's supposed to take place in the local church, but yet it's always somebody else's fault. And then take a look at what must have been going on in the minds of the space between Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8 and the work of the spirit that was taking place where the stoning of Stephen and the assault to their own personal safety did not only not prevent the gospel from going forward, but it caused this new ragtag group of disciples to engage the gospel and the cause of the gospel with greater resolve to live as aliens in this world and to multiply as missionaries in the midst of a hostile context. They didn't abandon their place in the local church. They went deeper and with a deeper resolve even still. I want to stop and take a look and see if we as 21st century Americans still look at the church in the same way and challenge our biblical understanding of taking ownership of our part in the local church. So we're going to do a three-week series to help us see the importance of the local church, the part we play, and what a healthy church looks like. So these are going to be the three weeks. Week one is going to be the church, why it's so important in God's plan. Week two is going to be what it looks like to take ownership of your membership in the church. Week three is going to be what a healthy church that's worth investing in looks like. And one of the things that I try to do 
when I put a sermon together is use plural pronouns and talk about our and us and we. This series specifically, I'm changing that to talk about your membership in the local church because I want you to look at your heart, not your friend that would really benefit from being here for this series and you wish that they were here this morning. This morning we're going to trace back God's plan to call a people to himself and in that we're going to see why the church is so important to God's plan. It's an idea that literally runs cover to cover in God's word and it's so close to God's heart that he sent his son to die for and ransom this thing that we call the church. And along the way we're going to see that the people in Acts have an understanding of the church and God's plan in such a way that they heavily invest in it and hopefully we can capture a little bit of what they captured. So to prove to you that these early Christians were tapping into something that was always part of God's design, turn in your Bibles to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 11. It will also be projected up behind me, starting in verse 27. It says, now these are the nations of Terah. Terah fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abraham and Nahor took wives. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was born barren and had no child. Terah took Abraham, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and your kindred and your father's house and the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this is a very important text and there's a lot of different directions I could go with it and a lot of things that I could point out. But for this morning, I want you to see the important and beautiful reality that God always had a plan to call a people to himself. One of the main reasons that we gather to worship is because it was always a part of God's design to call a people to himself. We see shadows of this even earlier in the book of Genesis with Adam and his son Seth and then Noah and Noah's son Shem. But we really see this plan begin to unfold in chapter 12 with the calling and the sending and the commissioning of Abram. This is the first time that God goes beyond just an individual and he lets Abraham in on his plan where he's going to call a people to himself. So he begins where he calls Abram, and he tells him that through him, he is going to create a great nation. And he repeats this promise over and over and seems to take it a step further each time he repeats it, even telling Abram that someday 
from him there would be a people that would be so numerous that they would be even greater than all of the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. And that could be worth a whole sermon in and of its own right. The book of Galatians says that we who have received Christ by faith are part of that inheritance to Abraham. We are literally engrafted into the faith of Abraham and adopted into God's family. And let me point out to you that God did not gather a people to himself because he was lonely. It's not like the triune God was sitting in heaven and felt something lacking, so he decided to be like the Nelms family and have a couple billion kids. It wasn't like that. You know, it's... It's funny because one of the questions that people ask when they first start to understand the Bible is if everything was perfect, why did Adam and Eve decide to eat the fruit in the hope of making it more perfect? Anybody ever asked themselves that question? I know that I certainly have. If you haven't, you should. It's not a bad question. But it's not even the most mind-blowing question. The better question is, if everything was so perfect, why did God feel the need to create mankind when he knew that they would be so utterly imperfect? Not only would they be imperfect, not only would they be rabble-rousers that would cause some issues, but literally, from conception, we were nothing but trouble. And this was a decision that would eventually cost him everything, even sending his own son when he didn't need us and he was in lack of nothing. That's the better question. But it has an easy answer. God called a people to himself because God loves you. Just looking at one of the many chapters in the, on this topic in the Bible, Ephesians chapter 1, we see that God called a people to himself because he wanted to adopt you as his children. He wanted to bless you with every spiritual blessing. He wanted to shower you with grace. He wanted you to share in his inheritance. He wanted you to be partakers of his eternal glory. He wanted to lavish love and grace upon you. And that's just three verses in one chapter on this topic in the Bible, a, chap, a topic that's laced throughout all of Scripture. So if you don't get anything else this morning, the root of why God called a people to himself and created this beautiful mess that we call the church is because God is in love with you. I want to hear you actually say it. God is in love with me. Let me hear you say it. All right, so you've got the main point of the sermon, so nobody missed it. The foundations of the church, one of the building blocks, is that God wanted to delight in you and wanted you to delight in him forever. Let me hear you say, through Christ, God delights in me. Amen. Amen. So one of the first reasons that the church is so important in God's plan is because it's supposed to be the place where we really hear about and really drill down into our hearts this critical reality that God delights in you. If you're not hearing regularly the message of how God delights in you, then you are not hearing the Christian gospel being preached. 
And it's very likely that you are not in a Christian church. I wouldn't blame somebody that wouldn't want to be a part of a church where you're not hearing about God's absolute delight in his children. Listen, folks, if your Christianity is not liberating, it's not Christianity. I mentioned some silly reasons why people leave churches in the intro. Well, this is not a silly reason. If you are not regularly hearing about God's delight, and if Christianity that's being taught is not a liberating message, that is a church that is worth leaving. Many churches teach a gospel of bondage, of condemnation, and I can't say that clearly enough. Condemnation is not the gospel. If the gospel being preached is not liberating, it's not the gospel. When we grasp the fact that God gathers us to himself to hear the liberating gospel message of God's delight in you, then we start to scratch the importance of why church goes from obligation to joy. So quick question. You who have trusted in Christ, do you understand the fact that God delights in you? When's the last time you just sat in a place of meditation and thought about the fact that God delights in you as his child, that he is a lovesick father that would stop at nothing to show you how much he delights in you. But there's another side of the coin. The church is also the place where we corporately gather to delight in God. <clears throat> if the church gives lip service to talk about delighting in God, but the only delighting in God is telling you to do more, to try to gain approval with God, then it's not a church. Because the gospel is not be delightful so that God can be delighted in you. The gospel is you're not delightful, but Christ was delightful, and he came and lived a perfect life so that he could cover your undelightfulness, and now the Father sees you through the lenses of Christ only as delightful. That's the gospel. And now in turn, we get to gather as the redeemed people of God. So a quick question, is the fuel for your Christianity based around what you do for the church, or is it based on your unfettered, over, head over heels delight for Jesus? We know that God wants the church to be a place where, we, where he demonstrates his delight in us and wants us to delight in him just because of what we see here in chapter 12, that God initiated the call to himself. It's so clear in Genesis 11 and chapter 12 that God was the one who initiated the call to Abraham. I mean, look with me again at the beginnings of the, at, of the call in chapter 11. He's just sitting in Ur of the Chaldeans, a pagan nation with his pagan family. It's not like Abraham was walking around searching for the God of the Bible. He was a pagan living in a pagan land, just like you and me when God mercifully grabbed a hold of us. Look, I know that I wasn't looking for God when God grabbed a hold of me. I was sitting in rehab, a criminal, beat up, and at the end of my rope, because of years of addiction, 
and how it had taken a toll on me. I was not lovely. I was a lying, thieving, stealing drug addict when Jesus grabbed me by the back of the neck and said, you're lovely, and you will be lovely for the rest of your life because you are covered in the blood of Jesus. Ephesians puts it even more direly. It says that we were children of wrath, even as the rest, that we were dead in our transgressions. We didn't have the ability to even look lovely. It wasn't even possible for my unloveliness to be able to shellack it and try to put on a new suit and try to look lovely. I would have just been an unlovely person in nice clothing, which, by the way, describes many people sitting in many churches across the world. And at my unloveliness, my least loveliest, is the exact moment when God chose to show me how much he loved me and how lovely his son was. And this calling had two parts. First, they were called out of something. Abraham was called out of his former way of life, never to be the same. Look, the church is not supposed to be like the rest of the world. We are supposed to come out from the world. I'm sure that you guys have seen situations like this over the years, but over the years I've met with many people where a girl gets unexpectedly pregnant and at the time it's really tough for her to have a baby. And an immature man who is not ready for commitment of being a daddy just keeps living the same life that he's always lived. Nothing changes. He just goes on to do everything and live life on his own terms. And you just want to slap the guy and say, look, being a daddy means that you were called out of your selfish lifestyle of living for you and that you were supposed to shift the gravity of your life to begin to live for someone else. And part of the calling is that we're called out of having ourselves as the center of our own lives. We begin to live our life for another. That's part of the call. So it means that our lives should look different than those who are living for themselves. God didn't create this plan to call you out of your former life so that you could just look and live the way that you always lived. But check this out. Not only are we called out of something, because people that only focus on the fact that we're called out of something tend to be a lot more about religion than relationship. And they tend to be self-righteous, telling you about all the things that they were able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps by and be called out of. And they tend to live in a church bubble because they mistakenly think that being called out of this world means that we create church world instead and never get stained by the actual world. This calling is a double-edged sword. We're called out, but we're also called into something. We are called into a relationship with a family. The calling to Christ and being placed into his body that the Bible calls the church means that you were literally placed into a family. And this calling as family has two parts. First, you're called to be family with God. Why is the church important? Because we are the assembled family of God on this earth. Wrap your minds around that. You, I'm talking to you, you are the assembled family of God on this earth. You're his family reunion. That's what's going on right now. 
So a question, how often do you think about the fact that we've been called into a familial relationship with God the Father? If you're in Christ, check this out. He's not your judge, he's your daddy. Man, he's not looking with his hand to just, this is the way I thought of God. He had it up here, and it's like, all right, here he goes again. Ah, here he goes again. He's not looking to do that. He's your daddy. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more your heavenly father who's perfect. And even if you feel unlovable, check this out. This is the cool thing. If you come here this morning and you know the extent of your unlovableness, if you are in Christ, he doesn't see you that way. He called you by name because he desires to be your daddy. He didn't call you to a ceasefire. He called you into a loving relationship. He chased you down no matter how hard you wanted to rebel because he is a perfect father. If you had a child, dads, I'm talking to you. If you had a child that was rebelling and you had the opportunity to chase them down and grab them by the neck and just say, I love you. Don't you get it? I love you. Wouldn't you do it? How much more your heavenly father, who's perfect? He's not your judge, he's your daddy. Where the church comes into the equation is, it is where we're called to live out that family relationship with God. So God gives you that first picture of why these early Christians saw the church is so important in the face of opposition and hardship. If people spent more time reflecting on and exploring on the wonders of their family relationship with God, there would be a lot less church bashing amongst Christians. I can't tell you how much I can't stand when people sit around and church bash. It's like, who the heck do you think you are that you have the right to sit around and make fun of Jesus' wife? Think about that. But there's a second part of it. We're now called to be family with God's people. When God told Abraham back in Genesis 12 that he would make him a great nation, we are the continuation and the inheritors of that promise. God did not say that he was going to call a bunch of disjointed individuals who were all going to do their own thing. He called us to himself and then called us into a covenantal relationship with each other that he calls family. If people really grasp the idea of being part of a covenantal family, it would kill the American individualism that dominates churches, and we would see the one another passages come to life before our very eyes. And it would stand out in the midst of this self-centered, individualistic culture and shine as a beacon of light, like Jesus said it was supposed to in Matthew chapter 5. But to live as family... We really need to believe that we are family, not just in some sentimental manner. We really are family. Let me hear you say, we are family. Let me hear you say it like you actually believe it. We are family. All right. The church, heading into the eighth chapter of the book of Acts, they got that. And it's a key element missing in many places, and it neuters the church witness in this world. People that focus on family with God, but miss the family with people, are people that are usually high on theology, but low on love. They know a lot of facts, but they don't know how to take those facts and one another with them in a horizontal type way. 
Churches that focus on the family with God or family with God's people but miss the vertical aspect of family with God are really just boring, dying social clubs. And there's plenty of them. God initiated the call to himself so that we could be family with the triune God and live out that relationship as part of that family with God's people as something that's so much bigger than ourselves. And this idea of being family with God is literally cover to cover in the Bible. I mean, think of Joseph. Joseph knew that he was sent to Egypt for a bigger purpose because of family. Think of Deuteronomy 7-7 where God tells the Israelites, I didn't call you because you're awesome. I called you because I want to make you a family. Think of Jeremiah 32-28 where God says that he's going to bring about a new covenant where he would call people that were not his family and make them his family. Think of Ezekiel 37, 27, where he said that God is going to give a new covenant and take a people who were formerly not a people and make them a family. Think about the whole book of Hosea, which is a pictorial look of a heartbroken husband who will stop at nothing to restore the relationship of an adulterous family. Think about Hebrews chapter 11 that tells us that Moses rejected all of the riches in Egypt because he considered being counted with the people of God and being persecuted with them as greater because he wasn't looking for riches, he was looking for family. Think about Revelation, the end of the book, where it tells us that one day every tribe, tongue, and nation will be worshiping at the throne of God as one. Thank you. So if you're wondering why these early churches took this so seriously that they remained a part of the church even after the stoning of Stephen when it would have been a lot easier to beat feet and take off, it's because they believed that they were a part of a legacy that was something so much bigger than themselves. And there was this sense of awe of who am I? to be a part of God's family. Man, just a little humility would go so far to just examine it and say, me? If you knew me, you would know that I'm the least likely person that should be up here and the least likely person that should be a part of God's family. Who am I, Lord? Sometimes I wonder if it's more obligation than awe that caused people to be a part of the church. As I read the sense of expectation that people lived with that were called into being a part of God's family, they had this expectation that God was going to show up in their midst. They believed that God was working in their midst. They believed that God would be found in that place. They saw how important it was to God and hopefully have built that case. Hebrews 12 builds that case even more where it talks about Jesus and it says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Do you know who the joy that was set before him is? You being his family. That's the joy. That's why he did it. So since it was important to God, it was important to them. All the way back in the call to Abraham and still in Acts 7, going to Acts 8, even though it cost them greatly. Brothers and sisters, do you look at the church as family? Another reason why the church is so important in God's plan is because there was a great price to adopt you into that family. Look, when God called Abram in chapter 12... He did not tell him that it would cost his own son to deliver a promise that he made to him in verses 1 through 3. 
The first place where you get a foretaste of that, really, in Abram's life is Genesis chapter 22, where he's told to take his beloved son, his long-awaited son, his promised son, his special son, and to take him out on Mount Moriah and to make a sacrifice out of him. Imagine the hardship that the father, Abraham, must have gone through. But God didn't allow Abraham to go through with the sacrifice because God's the only one that could provide the sacrifice to make you into his family. People that don't understand their need to be invested into a church have forgotten what it has taken to make them a part of the family. So what does it look like to be a part of the family? Well, that's what we're going to cover next week. But I want to tell you that it doesn't look anything like our consumeristic culture. Consumerism is the death to family relationships. Get that. Consumerism is death to family relationships. Some things that you are presuming, if you are not investing in God's family, you're presuming that we can do it on our own. No, you can't. You're presuming that we get it more than everybody else gets it. No, you don't. You're presuming that there are things that are more worth investing in that are more worthwhile. No, there aren't. It's sad that it even needs to be said, but we live in a culture where people who consider themselves to be committed Christians prioritize activities, sports, hobbies, and preferences above their familial relationship with God. And I would just ask you to consider, what would you rather invest in? Something that at best is going to last a decade or two or three or eight maybe? Or do you want to invest in eternity that lasts forever? The church, after the martyrdom of Stephen, got that, and that's what kept them going. People that miss this assume that your relationship with God is just about you and God. Well, if that's the case, why is there even a chapter 8 in the book of Acts? Why risk pain or difficulty or disappointment? Why not just go home and read your Bible and post clever things to Facebook and do your Christianity on your own and listen to a bunch of podcasts and recite everything that John Piper and John MacArthur says and then claim that you are living according to God's design? Because <laughs> it's a joke. That's not the Bible, because God didn't call you to just you and God. He called you to be a part of a family, and God knows better than we do. And in my final minutes, I want to explain why it's worth being part of God's family. It's worth it, because if you're a Christian, we should hunger for awe, and awe is found in community. It's worth it, because a Christian should be a grace junkie. And grace should be found in this place. It's worth it because throughout the book of Acts, we saw that Christians experienced Jesus together in community in ways that they could have never experienced him apart from community. It's worth it because worship is the highest calling of any created being on this earth. It's worth it because we are created to need the encouragement that the body of Christ was created to give you. It's worth it because there are a great many passages that you can't walk in obedience apart from being a part of the local church. And that's going to be our theme next week. It's worth it because we've been given gifts and we're called to exercise those gifts and we're going to have to give an account for how we've used them someday. It's worth it because the disciples are not made in isolation. They're made in community. And I could keep going, but I'm going to wrap it up with this. It's worth it because we were created to need family relationships, to spur us on to love Jesus 
when it's hard. To encourage us to lift our eyes upward when we want to lift our eyes only to the things that are on this level of this earth. To remind us that this world is not our home, but we've been created for something greater. To point us to grace when our life feels graceless. To remind us of the radical, never relenting, never giving up, always forgiving, always patient, merciful love of our Father when we don't feel it and it feels abstract. We need our family relationships with each other to help us to live out our relationship with our Creator. And lastly, it's important because we've been tasked with the same commission that was given to Abraham. In our text, it says that Abraham, that his descendants would be innumerable. That means that all the earth would be blessed through those descendants. Obviously, that's not referring to Abraham. He had a short lifespan. He probably only met a couple thousand people in his life. It's referring to the seed of Abraham, God's people whom he has called to himself. So not only are we called to be God's family, we are called to impact those who are not yet God's family and call them into the relationship that they were created for. We are literally living our lives surrounded by the not yet members of God's family who are dying without the hope of knowing that there was a family that they were created for. What we know as the Great Commission is just the practical application of the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that he was going to make a family someday and call them to himself. The church is supposed to be the greatest witness to the world that we have a God who loves us, who has called us to love one another, and has commissioned us to call people into our family who are not yet a part of that family. So I'll rattle off and list the points as the worship team comes up of why it's important to God and there should be important to you to be a part of God's family. Because God called you to himself. God called you to be a part of his family. God called you out of something. God called you into something. The price of that adoption was massive. Many passages can only be lived out within the context of that family. The family has been tasked with a commission, and that commission should have a cost. Jesus, thank you for calling us into your family. Pray that as we celebrate communion now, that it would be a reminder of the price of your body that was broken and your blood that was shed to make people that were not a people into a people. In Jesus' name, amen.